Welcome. Welcome to Know Your Roles, the podcast where every week we find unexpected connections across all your favorite mixed media, from film and television to music, literature, sports, and more. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Kleiman, and this is my co-host, Mr. George Payton's Place, Gordon the Third. Take it away, George. Nice. DKNY. <laughs> oh my. I'm Jiggy. What's up, Dave? Uh <laughs> I've been meaning to put that in uh, for an introduction for a, a solid 12 weeks now. And any chance I can put players anthem in there, I'm down for it. Uh, Dave, we've got a great episode. Um, we've got uh, Michael J. White, and we're going to be talking about famous Midwesterners and albums. But before we get into all that, man, what's going on with you? Thank you for asking, George. Um, I'm doing all right. I was looking at uh, an old box of baseball cards, the baseball cards that I've, I've kept uh, forever because a friend of mine was like... Uh, Yo, there might like baseball cards are experiencing like a boom right now. <laughs> um, and I opened this box for the first time in like so many years and, and I forgot uh what was in there. And like there's some really good shit. Like uh I fucking have a Hank Aaron card. Whoa. Yeah, it's not in a hundred percent mint condition, but it's in pretty good shape. Uh Bob Gibson I got this sick Ken Griffey Jr. insert card from the 90s that's got like these crazy inlay cutouts in it and shit when they were doing like just like weird ass things to cards. <laughs> Are you secretly sitting on a, a millions of dollars in your well, apartment? I'm hoping that I am. <laughs> that's I don't know, but yeah, that's the idea. Although some of these, like that Hank Aaron card, like I'm not, you're gonna have to pry that out of my cold dead fingers. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not selling that shit. I'm not a, I'm not that much of a capitalist, man. Like this shit has more value to me than than that. But uh um, but maybe, <laughs> maybe. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but, uh, what's going on with you, George? How are, how are you doing? What do you, what have you been up to? Man, I'm great. Uh, I spent way too much money on a Devo record yesterday. It's uh, 50 bucks. What's wrong with that guy? But whatever. It's kind of nice <laughs> to, to own, uh, the first Devo record, uh, which is great by the way. Um, uh, that's it, man. It's like, I've just been like listening. I got to get my money's worth. I got to listen to this record. I don't know, like maybe every day of my life for the rest of my life, no matter how long I live. But, uh, no, I've been, uh, I've been very, very good. I'm enjoying this nice weather and we're going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun from here on out here living in New York city. It's going to be like a, like a party everywhere you go until 11 o'clock, which I enjoy. <laughs> just get vaccinated before you come to the party, please. <laughs> exactly. All right. So what do you say? We get to this bar and open the bar, huh? Yeah, what's uh, what do we got on tap today, George? We're going to be talking about Major League Baseball. Uh, they were going to be playing the All Star Game in Atlanta, and they have moved due to that, uh, some of the things that have been going on in Atlanta. And uh, you, Dave, returning to work. Welcome to the world of bartending. We've been uh, texting back and forth about the MLB stuff, so I'm gonna let you go ahead and lead with that. That with our first thing on tap, Dave. Okay. Well, as uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game has been moved from Atlanta to Colorado because of the racist laws that they have passed that uh, are forms of voter suppression and, and things like it's illegal to give water to people in a voting line and you can't register to vote and then vote on the same day. And basically they have criminalized voting. And especially this affects black and brown people. And voter suppression is a term that has kind of been popularized in the last five to 10 years or so because we're understanding these things a little bit better and more on the whole. But we need to get it straight. Voter suppression, it's election rigging. Like that's what it is. And it's happened ever since we've been a country because if you've had free and fair elections, 
in quotes, and not everybody could vote, that's not a fair and free election. That's a false election. <laughs> and the Republicans are, it's a response to, uh, to them losing the White House. And uh, Howard Bryant wrote a really good article uh, that I wanted to cite. We, we will link to that. I don't have the, the name of the, the article right in the front, but he was basically talking about how like, you know, we need to remember that to not like really praise the MLB for doing the right thing, because like what they're really doing is damage control. And that's kind of what these sports leagues do. We've talked about this a lot. The NBA is a little bit better, mostly because of their players, but these sports leagues and these giant entities who take this stance that is largely performative, we always need to remember that. And what I wanted to say was that like, it just proves that public pressure matters because it is ultimately the right thing that they're moving away and, and taking those business opportunities away. And yeah, we need to keep pushing for these kind of things because it's not, I think some people like trivialize it and say it's not that big a deal or whatever. And, but it is, it is a big deal. And, and it's our way for us to say, we're going to fight this shit, you know? So, uh, so yeah. George, what's uh, what have you been thinking about it? I'm not nearly as eloquent as you are when it comes to issues. I, at the end of the day, I, I, I like the red jokes. My only thing about this is I'm not looking to baseball as to be a, a beacon of hope or anything. And you, for me, you don't get extra credit for doing the right thing. Granted, like I do commend their efforts. They did do the right thing. But it's like that Chris Rock joke from the 90s in which you, I graduated. Was, was you want a cookie? That's it was like, that's... <laughs> It's like, don't be a shithead and like, do the right thing. I think some of the other sports in which it would move the needle for me, let's say if uh, the SEC championship game was to be pulled out of Atlanta because of this, now we're now we're seriously talking because uh, less than 8% of people play that are, are black that play baseball. We're talking in college football, there's like 70% of black folks that play football. And they, if they were to go, listen – we're not playing this game in Atlanta. Then now we're now we're talking. But in, MLB was like, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you some claps for that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like it's still a league that has a team name called the Braves, a team name called the Indians, and they've they, they've got some problems in their history. I love baseball, and I played baseball a good bit of my life. But I'm just not looking at them for me. Like I'm not, yeah, I'm not gonna kiss your ass. <laughs> no. Oh, and none of these huge, you know, corporations or entities and institutions should be praised for doing the right thing. And first of all, yeah, you George, uh, you're much more eloquent than you you give yourself credit for, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, you're a lot better at joke writing than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, Mary Bess, is there anything that you you would like to add on this subject? Um, uh, very little. Um, I. I think I, I agree with both of you. I, I very much agree with you, George. Um, you know, accountability is important. It's it's important that we we keep that bar high. You know, the bar has been low for a long time, so it's important to keep that bar high and put pressure, like you said, Dave, on corporations, put pressure on government officials, put pressure on the people that have the power, uh, and recognize our own power as consumers to say we are not. We are quite literally not going to buy into what you're selling if you're not going to be mindful about how you do it. And I think, I think we can definitely work as consumers, as people who are responsible for the longevity of the product <laughs> to, yeah. to be able to make our voices heard and to be, be outspoken in these ways. So um, 
So yeah. Purchasing power. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's legit, you know, and we all have that and we, and, and like, whether we realize it or not, if, if you have $5 or $5 million, where it goes matters. Right. And we've talked before. Um, I think, I, I believe we've spoken before about like where you're putting your money, you know, to help people. It's like buying black, like buying, buying from, you know, small businesses, mm-hmm. um, buying from individual artists, um, trying to buy directly from sources rather than, you know, through something like Amazon, um, you know, which as we know is incredibly problematic, especially when it comes to unionization and, and you know, treatment of workers. Um, so being mindful with our spending and also being cognizant of the power we have in that, both to affect change positively and to hold businesses to account and hold big corporations to account, I think is huge. It's a huge thing that I think more and more people are talking about more and more all the time. And it's important. Yes. Well said. All right. Thank you, producer Mary Bess. Uh, George, what's, what do we got next? What's on tap? Dave, no, you should introduce this one. You're returning to the workforce. You're behind the stick. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the next subject is, uh, yeah, I've returned to work. I, I'm kind of easing myself in going back to the bar and, uh, yeah, I had, I just had some, I want to keep it relatively light. And, uh, I had some, some questions for you, George, uh, cause I, I've spent, uh, you know, a year plus away and, uh, the job is a little bit different now. First of all, I will say the thing I was worried about the most, uh, has proven to be unfounded fear, which was that I was going to be weird and awkward around people and shit. And like, as soon as I got in that space, I was like, yo, you're charming as fuck. (laughs) Still got it. (laughs) Still can pull it out. Still actually excited to be with people. It's nice to have coworkers again. It's like, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm rebranding myself as a bartender <laughs> and the job, like I said, the job has kind of changed. One of the big things I want to ask you is uh, about uh, your glove and mask strategy, <laughs> because it's become very important to me. Uh, I've, I've stopped by your work a couple of times and uh, I've noticed that you, you wear like the black neoprene gloves, <laughs> which are, oh, yeah. and I think I'm going to have to like get my own box because, and take them. Cause like, I don't like those shitty latex ones. Uh, but how often are you changing your gloves? Shift? A, a lot because I, I love putting them on. <laughs> I think I told you and Hillary the other day is like, it's as if I'm committing a very specific crime. Yeah. <laughs> like I gotta, I gotta, no fingerprints on the, on the gun. Um, uh, no, but I, I wear, I, I wear a lot of them. I go through like maybe like 10. <laughs> 10 a day. <laughs> That's about what I, what I was doing. Yeah, it's like not great for the environment, but like we're trying to be. Yeah, I'm trying to wear. No, yeah, it it, that that part stinks. But yeah, <laughs> I love putting. I'm like, yes. It's like, it's like where are they located at? Um, so yeah, no, I'd, I wear I wear like ten. I go through like five or six pairs, so like ten a day. And in mass, I usually wear the two. And for some reason, I fall in love with the bandana look. So even on not wearing the bandana over my mouth. I wear the bandana around my neck because I think that look is so cool. That's the one thing I'm going to retain from all of this is that look. It goes along with the crime I'm committing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I can't. I can't pull it off. 
Um, <laughs> Van Damme look is hot. Man. I do enjoy the the mask. Uh, I, I think you might agree that we're both we're both people that have like very expressive faces, and we make a lot of facial uh, expressions, and sometimes they're involuntary. Yeah, your, your, your eyebrow game has got to be on point. Your eyebrow and your eye skin got to be on point. I suggest you wear your hat backwards. That way you let people know that you're really excited to see them. <laughs> well, and that gets me to like my rebranding stuff because I am wearing a hat backwards <laughs> while I'm at work because this is the first time in my bartending life that I get to bartend in a hat, in a t-shirt. <laughs> and I've never like been that kind of bartender before. I've I've come from a more like buttoned up world. And like I, when I, back in the day, I, I had to wear a uh, fucking tie and suspenders and shit i didn't have to wear the suspenders i chose to do that because i wanted some like individual individuality in my in my wardrobe and everybody loved it and then and then uh everybody started wearing suspenders so it became not individual at all <laughs> but i'm a t- i'm a t-shirt guy now <laughs> um and uh like this goes along with uh i'm also for the first time i'm making playlists like i'm making long ass playlists for, for my shifts, um, which I usually like at my one place, I play records. So there's no, there's no playlist. And and the other place I would usually just play like a station or whatever. But my question for you, I know you do this and it goes along with the t-shirts <laughs> um, because I now, I now have a bunch of t-shirts with like uh, shit on them, which I never had before. But like this last year, we're like, let's buy all these t-shirts to support these companies and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so now I get to wear t-shirts to work to say like abolish ice and like that's one is for Carvel. <laughs> it's got an ice cream cone on it. So uh yeah, it's great. Um, but my question is, is it do you just decide randomly? Like with the playlist and with the shirts, like are you are you thinking about it? Are you just like, this is what I like? I'm wearing this today. This is going on the playlist, no particular order. Like, is it random or is it a thought process? Let me tell you something. Any opportunity in which I can talk about how smart I am, <laughs> I'm going to do that. Please do. When I'm wearing a, the Cars t-shirt, I want somebody to ask about the Cars so I can just destroy them with my knowledge of the Cars. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, yes, it's like, is it, is it random? Possibly. Do I also own a lot of band t-shirts? Yes. Am I smarter than you? You know more about bands than most people ask me about bands? Uh, absolutely. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when you're making your playlist, first of all, do you skip? Do you skip during the shift? Oh, yes. You got to skip because okay. like sometimes, okay. sometimes the, 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 the crowd, the two o'clock crowd ain't ready for yeah. Nas's Illmatic. They're just not ready for it because they're just, yeah. they're just not prepared. <laughs> so I, I like to ease them into that. And by the end of the evening, I'm like, all right, you, I think, I think they're okay. But during yeah. the day, yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not ready for that. So I, I do have to skip a few times. There's also like 3,000 songs on my playlist. So. <laughs> awesome. Um, i curating that thing for quite some time. All right. Well, is there, is there uh, just to close this up, is there anything uh, else, any, any other piece of advice you, you would give me for uh, this, this new chapter in, in my, uh, my bartending career? This gives you the perfect opportunity to get in a conversation and just dip right out of it. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of listeners the or who a lot of listeners that we have or a few of the listeners that we have are, are regulars in my bar and i love all of them and thank you for listening to our podcast but this gives you the opportunity to be like to get in the conversation and then you control the, the length of time you're in that conversation it's like listen i got another person thank you and you can just sort of dip right out of it so <laughs> you don't have to get into like what's the deal with the mets i don't have to get into that shit anymore you don't have to worry about that <laughs> that's great Kind of just like, yeah, cool, man. That's great. 
I got to get this. I got my man. I got to get to the next person. That's yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got to wait in line. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause you can't loiter. Cause you can't like people can't linger. No lingering. No, it's, um, it's great. Shout out to all my listeners, all our listeners that come to the bar. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and shout out to, uh, to, to my former and, and hopefully future uh, bar customers that listen to it. And uh, if, Show me your vaccination card before you. Go. <laughs> um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, you, I'm going to make everyone have a vaccine passport just to come see me at the bar. <laughs> but, but anyway, I think that'll, that's good for, for bar talk. We're going to go ahead and sit down with our good friend, Mike White and enjoy this conversation and game where we compare Midwesterners to some of our favorite albums hear that is what's up dudes hello michael what's going on mike how you doing hello mike it's nice to meet you i'm mary bess i'm excited to have you on thanks for being here yeah thanks so much i appreciate all the help by email absolutely absolutely how are you doing pretty good was just uh clicking on the video i wanted to check my lighting if it it kind of seems okay you look wonderful i see you've become very pretentious since you've made a, an excellent movie it's like i need to check on my lighting now <laughs> yeah that's that's getting yeah that's such a bad place to start i'll be like I, I don't i don't really i don't really like that take let's go ahead and try that again guys. exactly the mike that i knew would never check on his lighting he would just go with it so much has changed i'm over here moving plants like by the centimeter so to like make things look yeah. right so don't worry about it <laughs> well i'm i'm curious because uh mike you and i do not know one another we're meeting for the first time but i know you know dave and george how did the three of you know each other yeah i know these guys they were both at my wedding uh, George and I uh, been bartenders together for many years, but uh, I've I've been out of the game during the lockdown. And I met Dave through Hillary, who uh, also worked at the bar. And yeah, excellent. Mike has never been to my house. Well, maybe outside, but there is you are. There's a picture of you on my wall, just to give you that like uh, how much you mean to me. I walk by you every day. <laughs> I love that. I heard in the Car- in the Kara Gilby episode, I was like, "Oh, does that mean I may? I, I, am I on the wall too?" I hope so. <laughs> well, so Mike, you said that you you left bartending at when the when everything shut down. What uh, what have you been doing? What have you been up to? You know, in this last period here. Well, I was back and forth a little bit. Um, I did a couple shifts here and there, but like never really came back full time. And when they offered recently this 25%, I decided uh, at this point, I decided I was, uh, I'm going to hang back for a little bit, um, sort of officially. But um, I've been writing a lot. Um, you know, I, was, I think kind of like with everybody with the, the pandemic, um, at the beginning, it's great where you're like, all right, I'm waking up really early. That's a totally different thing. Uh, I love writing when it's still like dark out and I haven't thought about anything that's going to happen in the day and somehow just sort of visually when it's when it's dark, like you can imagine your own world a little bit better. Um, so that was really great. But, you know, then a certain amount of time, it's just you got too much time on your hands and, and your efficiency goes way down. Um, so, you know, I've been kind of ridden a few different waves. Um, I went through a period where like I couldn't read at all. There was just things were just too crazy. I could not concentrate at all, and I felt like I just lost my connection to books, and that was a really terrible period. Um, but that's that's turned around. Uh, since the new year, I've been on a on a streak and been kind of 
uh, catching up. Doing a lot of uh, audio book and reading at the same time. Um, and I used to kind of look down on the audio book game, but that, that's really silly. Now, if they're amazing books, they get great actors and it really comes to life. And a lot of times I end up kind of going back and rereading a little bit. Um, you know, you, sometimes I don't catch everything if I'm, you know, walking around doing other things. But uh, yeah, audiobooks has been a, that's been a great discovery. Yeah, a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of writing, uh, mostly pretty happy with my production. Um, but you know, a whole lot of flipping through Netflix and Hulu and HBO and God help me if anybody gives me the passwords to any more because just my whole night becomes, you know, clicking through. I can do that if you want. I have some uh, more. So if you want that, <laughs> oh, please just tell, just tell me what I'm watching tonight and have some punishment if I don't watch that thing. Because there's oh no no I I meant I can give you more logins so you can have even more choices and oh, have a harder no, time no <laughs> no 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 I will leave this podcast <laughs> all right well we definitely don't want that so you just kind of filled us in what you've been doing and I I I think a lot of us feel that I think there's definitely been like ebbs and flows as far as like creativity and just interest in content or or anything um you know but before before the shutdown and, and before the pandemic, I know that you had finished a film that you wrote song without a name and you guys were doing festival circuits. Now the timing is a little messed up in my mind, but did your festival uh, period for that film get truncated because of the pandemic? No, we had a full festival run. I mean, you know, it, there were some disappointments that we, we had some, yeah, we, we had problems connected to the lockdown. Um, it could have been a total disaster. Um, but we had a full year of, of a festival run. We played over 70 festivals. Um, and so there was no complaint at all about that. Uh, but what, ha what it messed it up, us up with is theatrical release. So we sold the rights to you know, over 10 countries. Um, they were trickling in one by one. The first one was France. Um, but you know, we, we got the United States, which was a, a really big one and, and we weren't sure if it was going to happen. And the, you know, the more awards we were winning on the festival circuit, we were really hoping the USA would happen. Um, the European countries are, were a little bit easier, um, especially a country like France where they, they love art house film and they, they'll will a way to get them into theaters. Um, but the U S is a really tough one, but if you get it, a lot of theaters. Um, so we did get a deal, um, here with film movement and unfortunately, uh, you know, or, or in hindsight, it, it was just what they had to do, but they decided to do, uh, you know, a virtual online theatrical release. Um, and that came, you know, we had a sneak preview set that was going to be at, uh, the Nighthawk theater right around the corner from the bar. Um, you know, on the other side of the park where I live in Brooklyn, we had tickets to that, I believe. Uh, yeah, I know. I think you still do. <laughs> I think you have a credit. There. Um, but you know, I was, I was really excited for that. Melina was going to be in town and, you know, this movie has taken so long, uh, to pull together. People at the bar have been hearing about it for years and, and, uh, very kind, you know, asking me updates about it. I, you know, poor George has been next to me here in the pitch uh, for years. Um, but yeah, so I was excited. It was gonna, it was gonna be like I was gonna know almost everybody in the audience, and Nadina was gonna be there, and we we're gonna do a Q and A. Um, and I think uh, De Blasio, you know, called the lockdown. It was, it was 
like one week before that event. So probably our thea- full theatrical release would have been about a, a month after that. So that happened um, most countries, a lot of countries uh, that we sold the rights did online, but France just postponed, just pushed it back. So we did play in theaters in France. We sold the rights to Japan, which we never thought would happen. It was just kind of a little bit off of our radar of like where we thought there was sort of a natural connection. Um, and they were awesome. They're like, we're, we don't care how long it takes. We're just going to hold out. And when theaters come back, we'll, we're going to put you guys in theaters, um, you know, specifically um, because of photography. They're like, no, this has to be on the big screen. And, and uh, I couldn't have uh, been happier with that. Let's see where else. Oh, well, Peru was a really big one. We, ha- we kept control over Peru. We didn't sell the rights. We wanted to have some control over um, the decision. And Melina and I were on the phone all the time you know, trying to figure out, you know, in, in the early days when you just really had no clue, you know, oh, maybe, maybe three or four months, maybe in the fall, um, we'll be able to do it. Uh, and a kind of strange and interesting thing happened, which a lot of strange and in- interesting things happened while, while we were making this movie, but was that uh, it had, you know, been released in uh, France and a few other countries in Europe, and then it had its theatrical release in the United States. We hadn't released it in Peru because we thought, okay, we'll try to sneak in like right around now. Like we thought, okay, probably Hollywood's going to come back uh, in next summer, like this summer. And we could try to sneak in there right before Hollywood shows up, but there's not a lot of other films out. And we thought that that could, that could work. And we just really wanted to, to have it on a Peruvian audience have a chance to see it in the theater. Uh, and then we started realizing that people were kind of upset. Peruvians were like, hey, we're hearing about this movie. It premiered at Cannes. Melina Leon's the first female director to bring uh, a Peruvian film to Cannes. The Europeans are seeing it. The gringos are seeing it. What about us? And, and it was kind of an awesome thing to get called out for um, to say, all right, you know, we, we, they want to see it. And we can't keep putting out fires of uh, illegal downloads on Pirate Bay. Melina was like emailing people, you know, just please, we're poor, we're not big Hollywood people, you know, just give us a few more weeks. And um, and then finally we decided, okay, we got to release this. So. so Micah, I was fortunate not to see your movie last summer. It's always great when your friends are talented and you don't have to like pretend to be excited about their talent. Your, your movie is really, really good. And I want all our listeners to check out I do want you to get into the process of the concept that you and Melina had to, to I guess, last year in the, the past year in the movie being out in different countries. So describe to us that process. Yeah, well, I mean, it took it was a very long process. Let me name some of the people that I, I should have uh, mentioned already. But the, the main players, uh, Melina Leon, a uh, good friend of mine. We met in New York in grad school in 2003. Um, we wrote it together. She directed it and produced it. Um, the director of photography was Inti Briones. He's also Peruvian. He's made a lot of films in Chile and in Europe, and he was the, the big time veteran. Uh, we were very lucky to, uh, to have him as the, as our photographer. And he had shot a short film for Medina before. Um, and then we had, uh, some of the main actors of uh, Pamela Arpi Mendoza. She plays Georgina, the main character. And, and, you know, I, I don't think we really we don't really have a movie without her. I can't even really imagine it any other way. She was so extraordinary. Uh, and then Tommy Paraga plays the journalist. And then we had original music by Pauchi Sasaki. And uh, again, like a, another kind of oddity about about this project. Uh, she's Peruvian too. 
she was in San Francisco and Melina was in New York. They did not know each other, uh, but they met at uh, Burning Man, became friends. <laughs> um, she's an awesome, <laughs> yeah, she's an awesomely talented violinist, avant-garde musician. Uh, she won a Rolex uh, mentorship uh, that got her to spend a year with Philip Glass, touring around with Philip Glass and composing with him. Uh, he felt that he didn't get enough time with her, so kind of extended their their time together. Um, so I guess I guess we can describe her as a minimalist. Certainly, it's a minimalist score that she created for us. Um, but yeah, those are some of the main players uh, in terms of the talent. But um, Melina and I uh, met in grad school. I was in the writing program uh, at the School of the Arts, ended up uh, taking just screenwriting classes. So that's how Melina and I met. Uh, and then the summer uh, between my first and second year, I wanted to do some traveling. I wanted to study Spanish. Um, my two friends from Peru, uh, Melina and Enrica Perez, who's also a filmmaker, they said, well, why don't you just stay at our houses? And you know, someone gives me a free place to stay far away and I go. And so I stayed with uh, uh, Melina's family for about a month and Enrica's family for about a month and, and then traveled around for about a month. And Melina's father, she just comes from a really interesting family of uh, leftist intellectuals. And uh, her mom's an anthropologist. Her father was a journalist in the 1980s. Uh, very tough time in, in Peru or every problem imaginable. They had... Um, basically a civil war going on when, when you had the, the Shining Path terrorists and then the military and um, a whole lot of innocent people caught up in the middle. Uh, they had inflation that was worse than Germany after World War II. Um, it, you know, the country was really falling apart. Uh, and so I got to know her father. I got to, you know, hear a lot about um, his, he wanted to hear about places I had traveled. Um, and we just bonded. My Spanish was really bad. Uh, his English was really bad, but you know, we found a way and, and, uh, and told each other a lot of stories. Uh, and a couple of years later, um, I was back in, you know, back in New York, Melina said, I've got this crazy story to tell you. My dad just got a phone call from a young woman in France who was adopted from Peru. She wanted to meet her birth parents. And she started doing all this research and finding all this articles in La Repubblica, which is the, the biggest newspaper in Peru, uh, about all these kids who were stolen from Peru and sent abroad with illegal adoptions. And, you know, as she's saying to Melina's father, you know, your name is on all these articles. Um, you know, I, I think I might be one of those kids. Uh, so, you know, it turned out she was, and she came back to Peru and Melina's father had uh, arranged this, this meeting with her birth mother. Uh, and that's where it kind of started for uh, Menina and I to to write this story. You know, at that time, it, you know, as students, you've got, you know, there, it's more or less like assignments. You know, you've got so many stories. I, I had a, um, I had my fiction writing submissions. I had uh, screenwriting submissions. I took a TV class. Um, so it, it started off where she had uh, written an early draft that that took place in Peru um, at the time when the when the kids were trafficked. Uh, and then there was a second part in New York uh, involving, you know, it's, it's 20 years later and it's almost like the, the story of the, the woman in France, but we had, we had placed her in, in New York or, or Melina had. 
And so she had me look at the script and read it. And I said, I, I thought it was going to make a great movie and I was really interested, but everything that was happening in Peru was way more interesting than the present tense uh, New York story. So um, she heard me out and asked if I wanted to take a crack at uh, the next draft. And she gave me a lot of room to, you know, I asked her, I, I did a, a lot of the research was, you know, asking her questions about that time and what was going on. And, you know, filling in the blanks of things that I was just confused about from what she had she had laid out the basics of the story. Um, so uh, that was the beginning. And uh, we wrote a lot of drafts. We, had, we, we were with it for you know, a lot of years. I, I think in 2008, it was chosen um, by a program called Script Connect that sends writers to L.A. and gives them a chance to pitch. Um, and we so we went out there and, and we're pitching it back then. I think everybody else who was chosen had commercial projects. And we had a, a, a very sad child trafficking story from Peru in, in Spanish and Quechua. So, so uh, you know. Yeah, not exactly. You're like ace in the hole uh, pitch, elevator pitch. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It's like Jaws, but not really like Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Without the shark or the bees or the partial nudity. Um, yeah. So uh, that was interesting, and you know, we got a we got a trip to L.A. Uh, we got to pitch some people. Um, but yeah, we had a you know there was there's kind of uh, always a lot of conversation in the like long gestation about uh, we, there was one company that showed a lot of interest with us and they were a reputable company. Um, but they were kind of, it's like, we sort of thought that they were our producers, but they weren't really willing to put money in. They wanted to look for other people. And we probably waited too long before we cut the cord with them. Uh, when you're kind of out on your own, you don't want to, you know, cut ties with somebody who shows interest and has made some um, some good films, but they probably did set us back. Now, in hindsight, I feel like the strange and long journey that we took it was just meant to be that way. That that 2019 was the year, and that uh, all that time, Alina was was becoming more prepared to really do it right, um, and that you know even like the casting that somehow um, you know the the story. Uh, a lot of the, the children, you know, they were stolen from clinics uh, all around the country. Um, but the first place that it was happening was uh, in a place called Via El Salvador, which is like a, a suburb of, of Lima. Now it is. Um, it was a place where basically there was no affordable housing in the city for all the, the maids and uh, the workers. And uh, people squatted on this land. and it, it became a city, um, it, you know, a place that had no running water, no electricity, and people were just building shanties about out of whatever they could build them. Um, and, you know, this was this started in the early 80s. Uh, I had studied about it and, and visited it there in 2003 and had a friend who had taken me around and actually helped some photographers who wanted to do some photography. So through my friend who lived there, you know, I got to go into all these different houses. So I only spent a couple of days there, but, um, but it is a really interesting place, a very tough place. Um, but also, you know, they, they created their own schools. They got their own mayor with zero help, uh, from the city, uh, from, from the, the government. So, uh, that was a, a big location. And, uh, 
Melina wanted to start there. She wanted to do a lot of improvising with the actors and, and wasn't so concerned about uh, finding like a classically trained actor for the, for the main role. Most of the victims were very poor women, indigenous women um, in very poor places. So that's where, that's where she went to do the casting. And, and that's where we met uh, Pamela R.P. Mendoza. And uh, yeah, I, I really feel like her, her contribution and, and, Melina's directing and, and Inti Briones, the photography, um, you know, I feel like those are the, the star qualities of the film. I think it's it's really beautiful and it's really, really striking and powerful. And I think all of the elements, including the script, it are really working together. And it's just a it's a very it's a, a very solid production. And, you know, because just what you were mentioning about uh, how much is actually in there about the history and about all of these different issues that were affecting the country, uh, you know, with the military dictatorship versus Shining Path and, and all that. And there has been a lot of healing since that period. But were there conversations between you and Melina about like the sensitivity of the subject matter? Because, you know, especially like the gap between indigenous and, you know, European in all of the, the Latin American co countries is still, there's still a lot of uh, strife and, and uh, brutality and lack of uh, mobility. Um, you know, so were there any, were there any things that you kind of like didn't had to touch very delicately? Well, first one, one thing that's very curious to, to bring in another kind of oddities of, of this production, but that I think served us well is um, our director of photography, Inti Briones, his mother was a member of the Shining Path and went to prison. Um, and people in Peru know that. So him shooting this movie, um, you know, turned a lot of heads in Peru. And it was like him revisiting a subject that couldn't have possibly been more personal because he was a kid and his mom went to prison for this stuff. Um, wow. So there's that. Um, also, you know, I mean, as far as healing, I, I don't really know how much healing there has been. You know, I think the country in, in a lot of ways, COVID exposed that all these inequalities are just as bad as they always were. You know, it hit the poorest places the most uh, and it hit our it hit our production team, too, because um, because it was a you know, we were we were casting from uh, Via El Salvador. We had a, a lot of participants um, who were for um, from uh, pretty poor places. Um, the, the music group that was a, a, the folkloric music group that she's a member of, uh, those were all non-professional actors. Those are just musicians. Um, uh, several of them got COVID. Um, you know, we lost a few, few, uh, members of the team to COVID. Um, you know, and at, at one point, you know, Alan Garcia was the president of, uh, Peru in the nineties, um, a little bit past the time of our story, but when things were still uh, pretty ugly. He became president again in the 2000s and then left uh, uh, with corruption scandals. Um, so, you know, I think times are still very tough in Peru. Um, you know, even for like a low budget production, you're always, you know, you, a period piece, again, with the Hollywood pitch, you know, it's a period piece that, that doesn't help anything either. But in Peru, you can shoot places that haven't changed all that much. Um, so, you know. Uh, that I, I think uh, so, some things are, are different from me going back from uh, when I was there in 2003. Um, I'd be, I've been back two times uh, into interim and uh, when I was there for the production in 2018. Uh, you know, things, some things had changed, but um, 
you know, Peru is still, you know, they're one of the countries having the worst go, you know, one of the worst goes of it with, uh, with COVID and, and, uh, you know, it's just one corrupt politician after the next. And, and that's, uh, you know, it's, it's a disease corruption where, you know, it, it like steals hope. Um, uh, I think that it's the worst thing about it. You just sort of, I think the, the effect is like, the feeling that you, you can never get out of this because you just everybody runs on an anti-corruption platform and everybody goes down on corruption. And uh, it's it's it can create a very cynical society. Yeah, well, the system is set up for opportunists, you know, to take advantage. Um, yeah. And especially in a country like Peru, where the gap is so great and, and in a lot of the surrounding countries as well, you, you see that uh, played out quite a bit. Um, but just the sheer, I mean, you were, so you were there during the production, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, it was kind of all hands on deck. I mean, it, it really, it really was a, a low budget operation. It's kind of curious how the film got bigger to me over time, you know, different after you see certain edits and then, you know, one day you're, you're in con watching it on the big screen and, and then suddenly the movie's really big and you're like, wow, it's not so little anymore. Like it, you, it really felt like a DIY operation the whole way. Uh, especially when you got, uh, you know, me on the set doing, doing whatever, you know, helping with, I, I, I wanted to be, you know, I, I wanted to be there. I did after all those years, I wasn't going to miss out. Like I, I wanted to, to be a part of things. Um, but I was basically a pro production assistant on the set and I'd help with catering, I, just whatever. Um, and try to, to shut my mouth when, uh, I can't figure out like, wait a second, none of these lines from the script are happening. They're ad-libbing everything. <laughs> you know, like What? <laughs> um you know but um but you know that that was another uh we, we had a, a million different versions of the script um but melina um she wanted to improvise with actors she wanted them to make it their own language uh the way she described it to me is it's like it's like yes i'm peruvian i've i've uh, i know this world very well this is you know based on a true story my dad was the reporter who broke this story you know all these things that are very familiar but at the same time you know she had been in new york for about 10 years and also she's not from uh, some of these uh, extremely poor places where it happened. And, you know, she, the way she put it to me is like, you can handle writing stories that, you know, take place in various places in the United States. But like, if you're going to write a story in the South Bronx, you're going to need to do some research and you're, you know, if you, if you want it to be authentic, um, you know, you're going to have to make a lot of adjustments with actors. And so, you know, for me to, you know, first, first, Thing I write that's on screen, of course, you know, you, you, those lines that you've written that like have, you know, you, you want it to be very nuanced and be doing three or four different things at once and, you know, hinting at this other thing. And it's like, now all that's out the window. Pamela didn't even have a script. Like she had read the script, but she never had a script with her on set. And, and that was on purpose. And, um, you know, in the end, it, it, it was the right thing. It, it uh, I think it, the, the actors really did make it their own. And I think if this movie, if it didn't have a feeling of authenticity, um, like just total realness, I, I think it would have failed. It, it wouldn't even have, you know, affected our emotions. And, um, and yeah, so I think uh, that was a huge risk for a first time filmmaker, but um, I couldn't have more respect for uh, my very good friend, Melina, who's just, she's just a tiger. Like she's, she, she had her vision and she would not be swayed. And, uh, and yeah, she, she carried this thing all the way through and, and it was a very long process, but even for me, you know, once we were on the kind of off to the festivals, um, 
you know, there were phone conversations, but for her, it was just a full-time job and, and the lockdown just made it that much harder. Cause it's like, you know, you you get excited. You want to work on other things. You want to talk about other projects, but it just kind of delayed the release and, and, uh, you know, it was, was just a lot more work and you're just trying to keep, keep the, the film out there. Um, so you're sort of still posting things and trying to keep the energy up, but, uh, that was another thing that kind of played into the decision of, uh, to release it in Peru was like, uh, we're gonna have to resort to, uh, you know, juggling competitions <laughs> to uh, to keep people looking at us. So, Mike, my Spanish is terrible. So, I'm gonna have you say it, say the name of the movie in Spanish, and then give me a reason why it's called that. Because I think that's one of my favorite parts of this movie is the fact that it's such a unique name to a title to title something. Oh, uh, thank you very much. It's uh, it's called Canción Sin Nombre. That's a song without a name. It, one of my uh, really exciting things that happened was when we were filming. And Inti, the DP, uh, had to go to uh, Brazil for like a day to finish something that he had, he had shot there. And he was working with Walter Salas. And uh, I love Walter Salas. And he asked uh, Inti, what are you working on? He said, I'm working on this uh, uh, this Peruvian film called uh, Canción Sin Nombre. And, uh, and Walter Salas said, oh, that's a great title. Where'd that come from? He's like, oh, this gringo <laughs> who wrote it with Melina. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, you know, it's a, uh, the main character. She is an actress. Uh, there's a lullaby that she sings that's uh, kind of thematic in the film. Um, you know, she she she's not able to reunite with her kid. Um, that that was it's it's a very it's a very tough story. Um, but uh, you know, music was a, a very important theme, and I don't know exactly where that where that title came from, but. Um, I feel like with titles with me, either I struggle for a very long time and it's sort of like a never ending process or like the first one that I got and then I never think twice. And this one happened to be um, one of those kind of lucky moments where uh, it felt right. I didn't question it too much. Um, I, every conversation, uh, you know, over the years, we'd, we'd uh, talk about every line that I wrote, but it, it was always, uh, well, how does that sound in Spanish? You know. Uh, and Melina liked it in Spanish. And when we started kind of pitching it around to people, when when the the people with money liked it, then then it was then that was it. So, Mike, before we get into the game, there's just two other things I want to get into. Is one what you've been working on now? I'm right. I'm working on my second novel. It's uh, also a very very long uh, project. I've been with it. My first novel came out in 2010. Um, so this has been a long time coming. Uh, it's about a it's about a Marine who comes back from Iraq in about 2007, um, but he's kind of the golden boy of, of his neighborhood and his hometown, big time football hero, wrestling guy, uh, joined the Marines. As the novel progresses, he kind of has some shame about this, but he was sort of very successful in war, comes home, and suddenly he's experiencing every kind of strange symptom and he's really depressed and he's uh, reclusive and he's, he doesn't want to leave his house and he becomes suicidal and he attempts suicide and he wakes up all bloody in his parents' backyard. And uh, it happens to be the morning when the 13 and 17 year cicadas have converged. It's a, a occurrence that happens every 253 years. And I was in St. Louis the last time it happened. And, you know, it's like every leaf of every branch of every tree is covered in cicadas and they're squawking. And it's like this mesmerizing 
swelling squawk and it's it's uh eerie and he sees the the face of a green-eyed angel and uh he believes that she's calling him to a new life and uh she wants him to be a catholic priest um but that's that's where the story starts and he becomes a priest and and uh, as the stress starts to 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 hit him the kind of ptsd starts to come back and he falls in love and he starts realizing that there's some things that happened in some of these parishes before he showed up that aren't so good. And there's a reason why they picked a really big, brawny, ex-football player, ex-Marine, all-American, not going to molest your kids kind of a kind of a dude. Um, and so things get very tough for him. And, and uh, you know, it, it gives me a chance to get into some stuff that uh, that uh, I want to get into with the Catholic Church and uh, and and also with Iraq that um, now I'm still not over all that. Um, so, but I, I also want to have a very earnest exploration of faith, and it's not to uh, you know I don't want to satirize people of faith. Uh, I know a lot of uh, of people who are believers who I think that they they are better people because of their faith. Um, so it's trying to balance a lot of those things. So uh, that's your teaser. That sounds fascinating. And, and I think it's super admirable that like through all your work, you're, you're not afraid to take on, you know, some of these, these uh, really heavy and, and intense uh, subjects. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited to, uh, to read that eventually, whenever that, that may be no, no rush though. <laughs> I never I, rush. Yeah. I never, I, I feel you. <laughs> I, I feel you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So Mike, part of the reason why I wanted to have you on here is because one, you are one of my good buds and you're insanely talented. And uh, when I, when Dave and I first envisioned this podcast, I, we wanted to do an episode about Midwesterners and you being probably the most Midwestern person I know from <laughs> growing up in St. Louis and going to school in Iowa yeah. and living, living in Minnesota. Yeah. I, I want you to explain to our listeners what it, what it means to be a Midwesterner. Oh man, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm coming upon a time. It's very strange. Like I just, uh, signed a new lease for this apartment, just this apartment alone. Like I've been in New York a little bit on and off, but you know, since 2003, um, so almost as many years in this city than all my time in the Midwest combined. And in this apartment in Brooklyn, longer than any house I ever lived in, including the house where in St. Louis, where, you know, I lived from first grade to sophomore year in high school uh, when we moved to Iowa. So I, I'm very Midwestern dude. I feel that, but it's weird when like you go home and like everything drives you crazy and you kind of don't, you can't do it that way anymore. Um, But at the same time, I look upon you know, New Yorker, New Yorker is born and raised as New Yorkers as, you know, I'm, d- I'm definitely not one of them. Um, what does it mean to be a Midwesterner? Uh, oh, that's, that's, that's tough. You know, there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, St. Louis itself, um, I've got a kind of strange relationship with, you know, I, I'm very proud of my hometown. Um, I love St. Louis, uh, but it's, it's got a lot of problems and sometimes I have a hard time being there. And, you know, I, I haven't really lived there full time since I was 16. Um, so the, the, the people that I'm, that I still know there are people that I, you know, I was in school with, um, maybe not, uh, you know, I, there's major differences in, in terms of politics and, uh, you know, uh, 
all, all kinds of subjects that you kind of can't go near. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Well, well, I'm excited to get to uh, talking about uh, to play our game because uh, I definitely <laughs> am pulling out some St. Louis pride there. But um, we expect nothing less. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I don't know. You know, I, I was wondering before the show started. I think like I feel like George really gets the Midwest, but I'm kind of curious that you know your your background is is more southern, but not deep south. Oh. Now, I think I think the thing that I like about Midwesterners and the ones that I've encountered who pride themselves on being from the Midwest, because there's no other region of the country that's like this. You guys pride yourself on working hard. And uh, and I, I feel like uh, where I'm from and where I spend a good of my life in Virginia and Tennessee. We don't we're not interested. in working. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's just not how we get down. Yeah. But Midwesterners are like, I got up early and shoveled driveway. Hell, I'll shovel yours too if you want me to. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that that's true. I absolutely feel that. I'm like that. Um, th- there's a lot of guilt. It, it's 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 you should do it, but also you feel like a terrible person, and you'll probably apologize <laughs> to your neighbor if you didn't get up and shovel your driveway because it makes the whole neighborhood look bad. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. I I. I grew up in I mean, my my grandfather would he'd, he'd have me I'd come over to his he'd have me sweeping his street like he would like it was a thing where it was like I had my duties taking out the trash cleaning the garage you know everybody's got you know how organized can your garage be that's a whole whole thing with uh uh you know everybody's got a ping pong table in their basement that's like folded up and has the sewing machine on it I was reading Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections a very long time ago. And the city, I didn't know he was from St. Louis. And the city in the in the, the book is St. Jude. I don't know why he calls it St. Jude. But there's a scene where they're like going to see the Christmas lights in this park. And I'm like, that really seems like Tillis Park. And then at one point, this guy's in the basement and he's like tinkering. And he's got, there's a, a ping pong table and there's the, the coffee can with all the coins in it. And I'm like, this is every basement I've ever been in. It's what's is this is this St. Louis? And yes, it turns out Franson was from St. Louis. And um, yes, we we Midwesterners have 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 our ways and have our obsessions, organizing and cleanliness and lawns that look right and all that. But yeah, my grandfather used to have me. He'd give me a broom, and not only did I have to sweep out the garage and then hose it down, but then hose down the driveway. That's why I did that at my house too. At his place, he'd hand me. Hand me the broom, and I go out, and like the the kids in his neighborhood would be laughing at me because I was sweeping the street. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that. Don't miss a don't miss a single blade of grass. Uh, yeah, mowing the lawn. Story. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Micah, uh, we're excited to have you on the Know Your Rose podcast to talk about Midwesterners and our favorite albums. Are you ready to do this? Yeah. Here at the Know Your Rose podcast, we try to compare two things from different platforms and make it fun for all of our listeners and uh again we're doing midwesterners and our favorite albums i'm going to start off david's going to go second and you're going to go last and uh my first midwestener comes to us from st louis um more specifically east st louis oh <laughs> oh that guy yeah well i'm like I'm, I'm talking about one guy but i'm gonna mention a few people on on the way there he played for the legendary football coach bob shannon who oddly enough has been recognized by janet reno Bill Clinton and George Bush um, played for the played for the NFL for 11 seasons. And uh, he was a member of the Miami Dolphins. And one of my favorite things that he did while playing for the Miami Dolphins 
is give the, the Buffalo Bills fan base to double birds on its way out of the stadium. And I'm talking about Brian Cox from East St. <laughs> Louis, Missouri. And uh, when people think of Brian Cox, they think of like a tough as nails, physicality, maybe a little rage. If you were to watch a a Brian Cox holler, it would probably start off with bomb track and end with freedom. And somewhere in the middle would be killing in the name of and know your enemy. And the record I'm talking about is Rage Against the Machine's first record, Rage Against the Machine. So Brian Cox is the Rage Against the Machine of Midwesterners. Dave. Awesome. Um, Well done. I, uh, as you know, and I think probably most of our listeners at this point uh, know that I'm from Chicago and we're like uh, Midwestern when it's convenient to be Midwestern. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. Like it's like, we're a big city. Sometimes you don't want to be a part yeah, of all it's that. Like, we're a big city. We're nothing like, like uh, you. And it's like, eh, we kind of still are, um, you know, <laughs> geographically, we're definitely Midwest. But uh, that's why I tried to keep it to as le- uh, as little Chicago people as possible. Um, but I did choose two. So I'm going to start with one of them. And that's John C. Riley. John C. Riley, who to me uh, embodies a lot of those Midwestern and-, and Chicago qualities, as far as like, he's very much about like the yeoman's work, like, like we were talking about, like the hard work and, you know, you, you have a craft and you do that craft. And, and if you've ever heard him in interviews, he is, he's very cagey. He, he's very cagey in kind of this like Chicago type way of like, not really wanting to let you in very much, but also wanting to just, just here and there, little, little uh, pieces, but, you know, as a performer, he is capable of, the emotional gamut. I mean, he is incredible. He can, he can do comedy. He can do drama. He, he has a lot of depth. Um, and that is why as an album, one of my favorite albums belongs to a Neil Young, but not one of the ones you might be thinking of a Neil Young album from the nineties called sleeps with angels, which is one of his records with crazy horse, his band. And, there's a lot of roller coaster stuff going on. There's, there's a lot of, there's some humor. There's a great song called piece of crap that um, is very funny, but there's also a lot of emotion. It, that, that album and the next one are kind of about the death of Kurt, Kurt Cobain, who Neil Young was very close with. And like Neil Young is someone also who like, he doesn't, he only gives you what he wants to give you, (laughs) you know? And, and uh, I remember, I'm, I, I hope I'll get this right, but he had a quote, something about, uh, um, the album harvest which was like a big hit and then he kind of changed gears musically and he was asked about that and he was like well whenever i'm driving straight down the middle of the road i like to turn the wheel and head straight into the ditch (laughs) um and uh to me that's very much like uh john c Riley. uh everybody should listen to the wtf interview with with him because he basically gave Mark Marin, nothing <laughs> like he, he he like loosened up a little bit as it went along but he was very and like it's a very Chicago thing of like how dare you ask me anything about myself but then 10 <laughs> minutes later being like hey I want to tell you everything about myself yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah uh John C. Riley is the sleeps with angels of Midwesterners nice Mike very good all right so I've, I'm gonna start with my albums and then match them to the people and uh, my first album is uh, the signature album from my first band, 
That is a band that I did not inherit from parents or siblings or anything that just me and my little neighborhood crew in grade school decided this is the band. And that band is Guns N' Roses. And that album is Appetite for Destruction. And I think Guns N' Roses, you think bad boys, sort of lovable bad boys. Um, but still, that, like, that album was a huge hit, like very accomplished. They were big. Um, I also think about Guns N' Roses, particularly Axl Rose, as uh, somebody that kind of everybody loves, but probably would hate if they were in a room with in real life. Uh, and the famous Midwesterner I want to uh, match Appetite for Destruction with is Jesse James. <laughs> the uh, train robber, bank robber, kind of lovable outlaw, um, but at the same time, pretty bad dude. Um, he was a bushwhacker. He was hardcore pro-Southerner. Some, some debates um, about Missouri as a Midwestern or Southern, which I would, at one point, we wouldn't even have that conversation, but I do have to concede that, that there are people in Missouri that feel like Southerners and um, the Southern part of the state and the Ozarks is, is a pretty Southern place. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, huge Missouri folklore and hiding in caves and robbing trains and banks and, um, you know, going to Kansas to, to beat up on the Jayhawks and try to promote the, uh, pr promote it as a slave state. So, um, rude dude, but nonetheless, he's getting matched with appetite for destruction. He made the cut. <laughs> nice. That, that's a great record too. Like, I think it's wet. Like the second half of rocket queen is like, the best fucking song. So good. <laughs> Chuck Klosterman would be happy somewhere. Uh, I had a one or two tracks on my playlist at the bar, and I always got a little snaky with it. You know, yeah. you got you, yeah. you got to. You got to fit it yep. in. Yeah. All right, George. George. All right. So, uh, the theme of this, my next Midwesterner, is uh, there is no denying their talent. And my next Midwesterner comes to us from Springfield, Missouri pride of Kickapoo High School. And uh, just like my theme, there was no denying his, his talent. And when he first really comes uh, to like a, become a, like a, a big deal in the, maybe the late eighties. Now there's no, there's no denying that he's probably one of the most famous people on the planet, but I'm only going to talk about the first few years. And I'm going to talk about this one movie that is in, and the five minutes of screen time that is in. Now, of course we all know that this movie belongs to Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. But the five minutes of this Midwesterner that he has is like, you're like watching it. It was like, I don't know who this is, but I think he's going to be a star. And the person I'm talking about is Brad Pitt. And again, there was no denying his talent. So I figured since I'm even talking about this person, this Missourian, I'm going to talk about another Missourian because there's no denying her talent. I'm talking about the former music teacher, the former backup singer to Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Belinda Carlisle, and Don Henley. And her first record, which sold over 5 million copies. So I'm going to compare two Missourians, two University of Missouri people, Brad Pitt to Show Crow's Tuesday Night Music Club, because just like him, there was no denying her talent. Dave. <laughs> yeah, those five minutes in uh, Thelma and Louise endeared uh, him to a lot of, a lot of people. <laughs> he became a sex symbol in five minutes. That was a that was a radical move, you know, the camera moving up Brad Pitt's body. Yeah. It was like the gaze of the camera was always male. It was always a male eye looking on, but something was different in that film. 
And uh, yeah, that was that was that's cinema history right there. It was, it was that six pack. <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. Um, all right, so my next one, I am going to talk about a, a midwesterner and an album with a lasting legacy, and that is someone from the the little town of Gilmore, Ohio, pitcher Cy Young. Cy Young. Now, Cy Young had the most wins in baseball all time, also the most losses all time, and they named the fucking award after him. <laughs> so, you know, he definitely had, he experienced both wins and losses, but the, the message is it's because longevity, because he lasted forever. And, you know, I didn't look it up, but if you look at, at his like innings pitched or whatever, I'm sure it's like in the thousands, <laughs> which is insane. Um, that is why as an album, he is one of my favorite albums that was kind of big. And then this band, they kind of went away. At, but this album has, I mean, all of their albums have a very lasting impact. And that's Doolittle. Doolittle from the Pixies. Um, it's still incredible. Uh, the legacy will always live on. So many people to come after it were were influenced by it. I mean, that album starts off with Debaser and then like Wave of Mutilation and Here Comes Your Man. I mean, that album is incredible. I think to this, I was listening to it the other day. It still holds up beginning to end. And uh, yeah, they're not going to change the name of uh, the Best Picture Award anytime soon, I don't think. So uh, Cy Young. He'll he'll always be relevant and uh, do little, always relevant. So there you go. Awesome. You know, I always wonder about when you think about precursors to Nirvana, um, like garage bands, you know, there, there's a, a few different uh, angles you can take on that. But I think of the Pixies a lot. Yeah. When he he was Cobain was like on record at being like super into the pixies and like he was okay. the stooges and uh gang of four you know those were like big big uh awesome him. all right i'm skipping ahead and sort of my personal chronology uh uh we're jumping to freshman year in college an album my roommate insisted on he couldn't fall asleep uh if he didn't have album if he didn't have music playing he was a big bob marley guy he totally ruined bob marley for me uh, but the album that I would put on that he could deal with, uh, was a live album, Grateful Dead, Hundred Year Hall. And that was like, I, I, I liked the dead in high school. All my crushes were hippie girls in high school, but uh hundred year hall, uh, felt kind of personal. Everybody had the sort of like greatest skeletons from the closet. Everybody always played, um, some of the, the better known songs, um, hundred year hall had, uh, China Cat Sunflower, Jack Straw, I Know You Rider, still sometimes, uh, you know, there's a lot of recordings where they, those three are in a row. Um, I think three of my favorite songs that they've got. Um, it's the kind of album that I just listened to so many times that it's like, it's in your DNA. You know, you've fallen asleep to it so many times. Um, you know, you think of the dead, you think of a, bat, a band with like big personality. They're funny. Um, there's something funny about them. They're silly. They embrace silliness. Um, but Jerry Garcia was probably a genius, uh, an extraordinary composer and guitarist. Uh, and so when I think of uh, my person that I want to match, uh, I want to pick St. Louis and Yogi Berra. Got to get a baseball player in there. Yogi, 
just this idiosyncratic guy, uh, hilarious, non sequiturs that have a feeling of that. Like that's almost kind of like there's a little revolution in that, uh, you know, uh, of just these things that don't make sense that crack you up. Uh, my favorite is it's getting late early. And uh, uh, I know I've said that many times at the bar and uh, uh, we always know when it's, you know, it's nine o'clock and you already got some issue going on. It's like, whoop, getting late early. Um, but you know, Yogi Berra, he was, uh, he was from a neighborhood called the Hill of the most famous, uh, Italian immigrant, uh, neighborhood in St. Louis. It's still the Hill. It's still where you go to get uh, great Italian. Um, he was a, his neighbor was Joe Garagiola. Uh, and actually I found out, uh, just in doing some research that, uh, Branch Rickey, uh, the the famous manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers who brought Jackie Robinson into baseball, you know, he was in St. Louis uh, before Brooklyn and he had kind of tricked the owners into thinking Joe Graziola was the bigger talent between him and Yogi because he wanted to go to Brooklyn and sign Yogi. Uh, His plan worked out where the Cardinals made an offer to Graziola who had a short playing career and a long broadcasting career. Um, but in the interim, before he gets to Brooklyn, uh, the Yankees, uh, signed Yogi. Uh, but he was almost a Brooklyn Dodger, but yeah, hundred year hall, grateful dead and Yogi bear. Nice. My favorite Yogiism, I think is, uh, half of this game is 90% mental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> George. All right. So my next Midwesterner comes to us from Detroit, Michigan, pride of Southwestern high school. While in college, he was one-fifth of probably the greatest freshman class in college basketball history. In fact, that, that freshman class played for the national championship, and then they ran it back as sophomores and played, it, as, played again in a national wow. championship. Unfortunately, they didn't win either one of those, and he stayed another year. His NBA career was actually decent. It was good. It wasn't great. 14 points, three, three rebounds, three assists. But the part of his, his life that I'm more interested in is his post-playing career, which I find him to be one of the most entertaining people on TV with his podcast and uh, the him, him being on a, a free, uh, get up and uh, NBA. And uh, the other thing that I, I find interesting about him is what he's done for philanthropies and uh, the state of Michigan and the city of Detroit by uh, opening a leadership academy in 2011. And in 2014, he was Michigan uh, of the year. I'm, I'm pr- pretty sure I pronounced that wrong, but he was the Michigan person of the year. And I'm talking about Jalen Rose and on his, uh, his podcast, uh, Jalen and Jacoby. There's a segment called "Keep It Moving" or "Hit the Brakes." And anybody knows where "Keep It Moving" is from? "Keep It Moving" is from "Release Your Delph," which is from Method Man's album "To Cow." So Jalen Rose is the Method Man "To Cow" of Midwesterners. Dave. Nice. Yeah. Just get Method Man in a in a Bulls uniform, and he can uh, score forty points in every loss. Um, <laughs> like Jalen Rosen, but, uh, uh, yeah, my, my next one is, uh, I'm actually going with someone from Detroit as well. And that's Aretha Franklin. And, you know, you just have to say the name Aretha and everybody knows who you're talking about. Everybody can probably think of multiple songs, but what people might not know is Aretha Franklin part in part bankrolled part of the civil rights movement and was extremely active in her life. Uh, She also 
uh, did things like offer to post bail for Angela Davis. And uh, a lot of her songs were kind of adopted by the movement. And, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, subtlety in her songs that was maybe lost on mainstream America that was like for specific people. Uh, And she, you know, really was incredible. And, uh, you know, like I said, her music is great, but what she, but her consciousness is really what I love. Um, And that is why as an album, she is reaching a new refutation of time and space by diggable planets. And now that album has everything. I mean, they are Digable Planets to me, especially that album, their first album, uh, it's extremely listenable. It's extremely melodic, extremely jazzy, um, soulful, like Aretha, the queen of soul, but it's super conscious. So, you know, they have stuff like cool like that, but they also have, there's a song that if people haven't heard, they should definitely go listen to. It's called Femme Fatale. And that song was written in 1992 and it's about abortion and Roe v. Wade. And it's so incredible. And I kind of was going to think about comparing Aretha to another, you know, somebody from Detroit, but uh, I I went with Diggle because I just think that they are like just such the perfect balance of, you know, entertaining, but also thought provoking. And and I think Aretha really was that as well. So yeah, that is why Aretha Franklin is reaching a new refutation of time and space. Also that, that title is incredible. Yeah. (laughs) All right. My next one, a little bit of a cheat here. I feel good about it. I'm doing a soundtrack to a film as a favorite album, and that's Train Spotting. Always look for a chance to talk about Train Spotting, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite movies. Uh, started with the movie, went to the book. Uh, I saw it for the first time in 1998, study abroad in Ireland. Uh, I watched it with my roommates. They went to bed. I started it over from the beginning. They woke up the next morning and guess who was still watching train spotting and not in any kind of shape to go to school. Uh, but I just watched it over and over throughout the night and had kind of like memorized half of the movie by the morning and was, you know, speaking like uh, uh, a Scottish ruffian uh, for most of that semester. Um yeah, I just just everything about that. I mean, that, truly, like that's when I really discovered Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. I, I don't know how I had kind of missed them. Um, I feel like in college uh, it was a lot of '60s stuff, uh, but kind of missed. Uh, they they were sort of a mystery to me. I think I thought I think I thought Lou Reed was British, <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I a- absolutely uh, love the soundtrack. Sound does so much for that film. Uh, and the person I want to link that with is St. Louis fiction writer, William Burroughs. Um, I just thought everything about train spotting, the experience of watching that film is like sticking your finger in an electric socket. And, uh, that's what William Burroughs does with prose. Uh, that's what naked lunch is to me. It's just like this thing that's just alive and electric and it zaps you and then you've got obviously all this stuff with heroin addiction and um, uh, yeah, just this kind of punk attitude towards life and art. Nicely done. All right. For my fourth choice, my next Midwesterner comes to us from Indianapolis, Indiana from 1933. 
1934, him and his gang, they robbed 12 banks. And in his 31 years of being on this earth, he escaped from prison three separate times. And the Midwestern I'm talking about is John Dillinger. Now, it would be easy to compare John Dillinger to Dillinger Escape Plan, but I don't do things easy. I'm always going to make it hard for myself. And if I'm going to talk about a badass criminal, I'm going to compare him to a badass musician who's one of his most famous records is playing live in front of a bunch of criminals. And I'm talking about Johnny Cash's Live at Folsom Prison. So John Dillinger, you are the Johnny Cash Live at Folsom Prison of Midwesterners. Dave. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> John D- Dillinger uh, shot outside the, biogra- yeah. the biograph uh, movie theater that I used to go to as a kid. And every time it's like, hey, you know, John Dillinger was caught here and shot in the back. Um, <laughs> seen in high fidelity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So my next uh, is actually a pair of Midwesterners and people that we have talked about on the show before their work. And that is the Cohn brothers, Joel and Ethan Cohn from uh, actually... Oddly enough, St. Louis Park, Minnesota, um, you know, and we know, as we know, they are the creators of, I mean, I don't know if they're the creators, but they are uh, the, they have let us, the world know about uh, Minnesota nice, um, which like, if you're a Midwesterner is kind of goes to what we were saying early of like the, like, we'll shovel your, we'll shovel uh, your, your driveway, but we won't fucking uh, give you water if you're you're dying um but uh i mean we might but depends um but 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 uh the thing about the coen brothers that the reason i love them so much and what i want to talk about is uh their world building their world building is incredible you know when you're watching a coen brothers film but yet they have done a lot of different things and they do a lot of different a lot of different types of stories a lot of different types of storytelling and for me, even the their work that isn't as successful is still valuable and and like is still pretty good. And that's why, as an album, they are one of my favorite albums, which is "Bizarre Ride to the Far Side" by the Far Side, of course, which is one of the, in my opinion, one of the great. 90s hip-hop records uh it's got a lot of humor on it it's also got some depth um you know of course uh passing me by is the big song but i actually think the next song other fish is like a better song um you know and like if you want to debate about better best coen brothers movies i think that's a conversation that could last for the end of time uh because there's so many great choices you know pardon thing <laughs> that's definitely up there for me um with john goodman from st louis <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Another Midwesterner. Um, but yeah, that's why Coen brothers are bizarre ride to the far side. Very nice. Mike. Okay. I'm jumping ahead to an album that came out in 1997, but for me, I was late on the uptake. Uh, I'm in New York, early two thousands, mid two thousands. The album is stereo labs, dots and loops love stereo lab love all of their albums um that one's probably their biggest one and maybe has uh, something that might uh, be a contender for a single um i think uh brackage i think that uh opening track was released as a single um 
I, I just love this, love this band, love that album. Um, it's, there's something about the, the lyrics. Uh, I, Leticia Saudier, I've had a chance to see her um, play in a very small church. And then I saw Stereo Lab play about a year and a half ago at um, Brooklyn Steel. And that was just dream come true. Like, I just, I didn't think it would happen. They weren't together for a long time. Um, it was everything I wanted it to be. Um, but the lyrics are very cryptic. They're like a very radical band. They're an arty band. They're avant-garde. Um, some of they're sort of hard to define their genre. Like you look them up and people say they're influenced by like kraut rock. Um, yeah, like pop art. Um, and I very feminist, uh, very political. There's something kind of surreal about them. Uh, I think they've got a little bit of like a Dada attitude. Uh, and I equate all of those things with the artist Georgia O'Keefe, who is from a dairy farm in Wisconsin. Don't get more Midwestern than that. <laughs> spent a lot of time in New York. She went to the Chicago Institute of Art. She spent a lot of time in New York and New Mexico, as as we all know from her paintings. But um, it seemed it just felt like a natural fit. I was kind of feeling this one as um you know there, there's something i i adore leticia sadier and i think she's so sexy just for like her boldness and her her radical politics and she's um she just has this extraordinary like independent spirit and that's what i think of, of georgia o'keefe i think her work is really sensual it's really personal it's very abstract uh, it feels political, but you can't quite put your finger on exactly what it is. Um, so yeah, dots and loops and Georgia O'Keefe. Nice. That's a great rec. I mean, that record is incredible. George. All right. So whenever we do these, I always try to stick a landing with my last choice. So I'm going to try to stick a landing with this one. And this Midwesterner is, uh, is going to be controversial, but I'm going to make it work. This Midwesterner comes to us from Minnesota. I'm going to mention the, the town that she's from in just a moment. Now, people are going to hear me say her name and be like, George, how long was she in Minnesota? Because most people know her as somebody from California. And that is true. But the thing is, is like uh, she will forever be connected to Minnesota in the Midwest because one, the name of the town that she's from in Minnesota just happens to be her first name. Two, she dated Dave Perner from Soul Asylum, a band that just happens to be from Minnesota. And three, the name of the high school and one of my favorite movies that she's in, Heather's, is called Westerberg High, which is the last name of Paul <laughs> Westerberg, who was the lead singer of The Replacements, who just happens to be from Minnesota. And the person I'm talking about, I've been in love with since I was probably about 11 years old, whether or not she's Lydia Dietz and Beetlejuice, whether or not she's a murderous teenager in Heathers, whether she's a Gen Xer uh, looking for a job in Reality Bites, fuck Troy, by the way. And the person I'm talking about is Winona Ryder from Winona, Minnesota. Now, I think her career is great. Some people are like, well, it's there's some things that have happened, whatever. I don't really care about that. And to me, Winona Ryder's pavements slanted and enchanted, an album that is great, but just like Winona, at times can be a little messy. <laughs> uh, I, I've actually been to Winona, Minnesota. It's right on the, the Wisconsin border, <laughs> the tiny little nothing town. But um, 
no offense to anyone from Winona, Minnesota, the, the, the 1000 people from Winona, Minnesota. Um, okay. So I'm going to do my last one. I said, I had two Chicagoans. This is the second, uh, this is somebody who is very important. And also the album as well, people, the people that made it and, and just the, the act of the album, these are things that their, their simple existence are acts of resistance. And the Midwesterner Chicagoan that I am talking about is Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton, one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party. Of course, I'm sure many of our listeners have just seen Judas and the Black Messiah. I'm not going to, talk, you know, not that that's like 100% historical accuracy. You should also look up a lot of things about Fred Hampton. But what I want to talk about about him, what they talked about a little bit in the movie, but is that what he was really about, which was bringing people together. That was his whole thing was he wanted to bridge all these gaps of people, of working class people from all different races and all different backgrounds in order to heal and build and and feed people and take care of people where they were getting left behind by the government and by the institutions. And, you know, I don't think that that can be stated enough. And, you know, he, of course, that was called the Rainbow Coalition, which then Jesse Jackson adopted that name later um, for Rainbow Push. And that's why as an album, Fred Hampton is expensive shit by Fela Kuti, another person who his very existence and his making music with his band, um, they changed names a bunch of different times, but I believe Africa 70 is like the 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 main one but uh um he had his club the shrine where they they played every every night and it was a a a place of a, a revelatory uh space however its existence was a crime according to the state and they were raided all the time uh as well as his his compound that he had was constantly raided which is also as you, as most people know about Fred Hampton now, who you know was murdered by the state uh, for his beliefs, and Fela Kuti, there's so many parallels, and the story behind expensive shit uh, is really incredible. So the song is about an occurrence that he had where the Nigerian government raided his his compound and they tried to plant a joint so that they could jail him, and he grabbed it and swallowed it whole and they still arrested him and they said we're going to test your shit for marijuana so that we can keep you in jail and during the course of like his his uh imprisonment he actually paid someone else to change shit with him <laughs> um and that is why the song is called expensive shit and yeah, like I said, there are so many parallels between these two guys, uh, you know, and and ultimately what they both wanted to do was bring people together and, and and take care of people and celebrate life, you know, in in the face of all of this oppression. So, yeah, that is why Fred Hampton is the expensive shit by Fela Kuti of uh, Midwesterners. Beautiful. Very well put. All right, last one. I'm swinging for the fences, dudes. Really going for it here. Um, I'm not even going to say Beach Boys. I'm going to say Brian Wilson's Pet Sounds. One of my favorite albums of all time. 
absolutely one of the greatest moments of my life uh, when my wife and I went to uh, Radio City Music Hall and saw him play the entire album. And then, I mean, he started off playing like five or six uh, Beach Boys hits. And then he played the entire Pat Sounds, then he played like 10 more Beach Boys hits, and it was uh, just a beautiful night, and it was the first time I had I had seen a show at Radio City, and I'm not such a big snob for sound, but the, the sound in that place is, it's everything it is cracked up to be, it's a whole different thing, and for that album, uh, that musician, that sound, it was an amazing experience, but I think of... Uh, Pet Sounds, it's it's vast, it's expressive, it's very personable, it's very personal. He makes himself very vulnerable. Um, you know, he basically, uh, you know, pop music, rock music, even studio recording will never be the same after that album. Uh, he did not get much support. Um, he, for him, it was a big risk messing with a good thing with a, a band that had uh, every kind of commercial success and uh he had formal and stylistic innovations he brought in an orchestra um and he had just had a lot of things going that uh this would this was not set up to be something commercial um and the other thing when i come around to my person i'm comparing this album to uh is i felt that he even though it's maybe not so directly speaking about mental illness i think it absolutely it's very melancholic um, I think you feel uh, his sensitivity and and his fragility, uh, and he certainly suffered a lot uh, for, um, from mental illness issues. Uh, he had a few different diagnoses over the year, but um, a guy who'd had a, a tough life and tough go of it, I think there's really few things scarier than uh, mental illness, the idea that you're not in control of your thoughts. Um, and so he had a very bad run of it and he turned it into, uh, you know, beautiful art. And, uh, I absolutely love that, that album. Now I'm going back to who, who am I going to pick? I got, it's gotta be somebody huge. I'm still st hanging around St. Louis, but a few people I haven't mentioned. Um, well, Missouri, I could do Mark Twain. He's pretty big, but that's not quite the right fit. T.S. Eliot, I don't know, he changed poetry for all time. It was just kind of like the James Joyce of poetry, modernism, you know, wasteland kind of changed everything. Tennessee Williams, kind of a big deal, you know, has a few people that followed in his footsteps. Not sure if he totally reinvented it, but he is the voice of American theater. Uh, I don't know, maybe Chuck Berry. There's a there's a few people vying for uh, Godfather of Rock and Roll, but Chuck Berry, uh, he's on the front end. And then who I thought George was alluding to right when he said he's St. Louis, I thought he was coming out with Miles Davis. Kind of a biggie. But no, somebody who I did not know was from St. Louis until very recently, and my comparison is Dr. Maya Angelou. Yeah. Didn't know she was from St. Louis. She is. Uh, and I, I choose her as a comparison because she knew a lot of trauma in her life and she she turned it into the substance of her most important work. I know why the cage bird sings. And it was an autobiography that was like a, in a different language, uh, the language of poetry. Uh, I thought that what Brian Wilson was doing was kind of creating almost a new language in, in studio recording. Um, it had a very innovative structure. Uh, she, it wasn't based in you know, almost most memoirs are chronological. Hers were 
was based on memory and then juxtaposing memories to, to sort of build her argument. And it's, uh, it's really her finding her, her own voice. Um, she was very shy. You know, Brian Wilson was reclusive. Um, she was uh, basically a mute for a little while uh, as a child. She had, she had um, had some very traumatic experiences, in, including being raped um, when she was young and um, had experienced extraordinary um, incidences of racism uh, that really destroyed her confidence. And, and I know why the cage bird sings is, is her finding her voice and, and making art out of her trauma and uh, doing it in a way that, that changed the game forever. So Pat Sounds and Maya Angelou. Those are both masterpieces of, of uh, American art. The, you know, Why the Cage Bird Sings and, and uh, Pet Sounds. I think Pet Sounds is like a perfect album. Me too. Well, fellas, we did it. Producer Mary Best, do you have anything before for Mike before we let him go? Uh, I just want to say this is so lovely. I, I haven't had a chance to watch um, Song Without a Name, but I'm very much looking forward to it. And I am so grateful that you were able to talk us through the process. It sounds like a really impactful story an incredibly important topic and and a really really heartfelt um project so congratulations to you on the success of that and we look forward to seeing a lot of uh, really great stuff from you excited excited about it yeah thank you so much i really appreciate it and uh yeah one thing a, a final note about the film and for me it was it was really an extraordinary honor to be a part of it um you know i got to be for for a while it was just melina and i for a long time and then you know, one day we're on the set and I was counting out lunches and we had 170 of them. And it was like, wow, this became a big thing. But uh, I never kind of lost that feeling of like, uh, it, it just felt like this is uh, uh, really an honor and a, a unique um, opportunity to be a, a guy from, from St. Louis to be part of this film that was so Peruvian and, and spoke about so many important issues there. And uh, I, I, I still feel very humbled by that and uh and grateful to to melina and everyone else that kind of brought me in awesome i think i haven't spoken to you since uh i've watched the movie but i i do just want to say i think it's an incredible achievement and y'all should be very proud of of the work i think it's really powerful very nice uh mike before we let you go plug something for us so we can put you out to our, all of our listeners please see Song without a name. You can uh, stream it on Amazon Prime or Vudu right now. Check it out. Um, I'm. I think uh, the main actress Pamela R.P. Mendoza um, deserves every award out there and won a bunch of them. Uh, Melina is a first-time director, and I think it's really extraordinary. And she's got a very big career ahead of her, and uh, um, she's she's going to be a big name. Uh, and then uh, Inti Briones, the photographer. I mean, you could just you could just stare at the photography for a while, and that that was something that on set, you know, it was it was a tough shoot. Um, we had a lot of challenges, but every time I looked at the monitor, I was like, well, at least we have that. You know, it's the times when I would just think like, this isn't gonna, work. <laughs> you know, it's like we're never gonna get there. It's never gonna be what we wanted to be. It's too um, and so I had, had some issues of faith, but I never, every time I looked at the monitor, I'm just like, wow, the photography is so amazing. And it's in a, it's a, it's in monochrome. It's a very, very shimmering black and white. And, 
I think those are the kind of star qualities. So uh, yes, very appreciative to anyone who wants to dig into uh, a tough story, um, but is not without hope and uh, not without uh, characters we can really admire and, and feel inspired by. That's great. Well, it's good to see you, my friend. We'll have to do a park hang. Absolutely. And uh, thank you. You've been so generous with your time today. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Great to meet you, Mike. Take care. Thanks, Mary Beth. Yeah. Bye. You, Mike. All right. We're back. We want to again say thank you to our guest, Mike White. That was a great conversation and game. Always great to spend time with him. And definitely go ahead and check out his film that he wrote with his partner, Melina Leon, Cancion Sin Nombre, or Song Without a Name. It's really, really powerful, and I, I highly recommend it, everybody, to uh, to give that a watch. Also, definitely look for his first novel, Weeping Underwater Looks a Lot Like Laughter, which, wow, that's a, a hell of a title. It's like a Modest Mouse record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is like that Modest Mouse record. But uh, you can find that uh, wherever books are sold and, uh, you know, buy from your local bookstore. And you help out Mike and you help out the bookstore. So, you know, that's great. We are going to move into Last Call now where we look ahead to the week coming up and, and things that we are watching. So, George, what do you... Uh, what are you looking forward to? What are you excited about this next week or so? Well, this as far as sports go, this is one of my favorite times of year because it ends with the national championship game. And then the following week is the Masters. Anybody knows me, the Masters is one of my favorite events uh, throughout the year in sports. And I, I look forward to watching it every year in April. It was in November last year. It was a little bit different different time, but they still had it. And, of course, I'm going to be rooting for a few guys. I'm going to name their name right now, Colin Morikawa. Uh, and uh, Cam Smith. Cam Smith, I'm in for him because I love his mustache-hair combo, which is incredible. I actually thought he was from Arkansas. Turns out they have mullets in Australia, too. So looking forward to the Masters and rooting for Cam Smith and Colin Morikawa. Dave, what are you looking forward to? Awesome. Um, just a couple of really quick things. I am, when this podcast comes out on Friday, uh, Friday night, I am actually going to pick up some pizzas from my friend who is doing who has his own pop-up pizza shop that he started out of his apartment which has, has been kind of happening uh and i think it's super cool and this is called pies upstairs and it's my friend dave k who i used to work with and not me even though that is <laughs> similar to my name dave to the motherfuckers hey <laughs> I, I i actually had someone come come in once and ask for him at the bar and like is Dave K here? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fucking right here. <laughs> um, but uh, no, his actual last name is K. Um, but anyway, pies upstairs. He's doing pieces out of his out of his home. Uh, he's doing every Thursday and Fridays pickup. You can check them out on Instagram at pies upstairs. And yeah, I'm looking forward to eating some delicious pies and you know supporting one of those local startups. It's awesome. The only other thing I'm looking forward to is continuing a new obsession that my fiance Hillary and I have have found um on HBO Max it is a reality show a british reality show that's existed for a while i think there's four seasons of it but we have just uh, gotten wise to it and that is the great pottery throwdown <laughs> and it's a reality competition a, a ceramics competition and it's like 
amateur to like kind semi professional uh, potters and ceramicists. And it's like a, you know, a long competition, uh, like a top chef where they have different challenges and like they have like a main make that takes like, you know, a week or so. And, but like in between they'll do like short little challenges and it's amazing. I mean, if you like crafts at all, um, or just any kind of artistry, I highly recommend it. It's so much fun. So fascinating. It's also like, you know, if you know anything about pottery, it's like, it, it's, it can be so heartbreaking because like you can do everything right. And it, it might explode in the kiln, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And to, to no fault of your own or, or anything. And, uh, you know, they shoot it at like this famous old school, like pottery factory in England. And like, there's so much history there. And the, ho the, the judges are like these pros. There's like a man and a woman. The woman is like a really amazing, successful artist. Like she does this amazing artistry uh, on, uh, clay and stuff. And the, the other, the, the, the gentleman is, uh, I'm forgetting their names, but he's like a master potter and like watching him do the demos and like talk through it and like make things that are, that take an entire lifetime to get right. Like make it look so simple is incredible. And also this guy's kind of incredible because he's like this big, big kind of oafish looking dude, but he has, he's so delicate with his pieces. And also whenever he's judging almost every single episode one of the pieces makes him cry. <laughs> he always is crying. He's like, oh my God, the weight of this is perfect. <laughs> and he starts crying. Uh, so yeah, the great pottery throwdown. It's incredible. And uh, it's on HBO Max and I recommend it. I mean, the title alone makes me want to just watch right now. The great pottery throwdown. Come on. Yeah, right. The the rumble in the jungle. Exactly. <laughs> you know, because they throw the pots on the wheel and stuff. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we are now going to check in with producer Mary Bess for The Buzz. And Mary Bess, our favorite regular of our uh, Know Your Roles bar. Mary Bess, please enlighten us. Thanks, Dave. Uh, so today I want to talk about something really fun that I'm looking forward to next week. Um, hello, Wallace. I don't know if anyone heard uh, heard uh, Dave's dog Wallace chime in. Uh, I guess Wallace is excited about this too. It's CatCon, everybody. CatCon is next week. Established in 2015, CatCon is the biggest cat-centric pop culture event in the world dedicated to all things feline, part expo, part symposium, part fundraiser, part adoption event. This annual two-day immersive experience offers all kinds of great events and merchandise featuring the latest gifts and gadgets for you and your cat. Uh, my friend Sam and I went in person a few years ago, and it was absolutely delightful. Um, I'd love to go back, uh, but this year's convention, uh, like many events, will take place virtually, lovingly called CatCon from Your Couch on April 17th and 18th. Tickets are on sale now with $5 of every ticket going to charity. And over the past six years, CatCon has raised over $250,000 for organizations like Fix Nation, Lil Bub's Big Fund, Kitten Rescue, and many, many others. Uh, this year's featured charities are Ferndale Cat Shelter, Lux Paws, Planned Pethood, and Red Rover. So you can go to www.catconworldwide.com to find tickets and learn more about CatCon. And if you can't attend, please consider donating to a charity that looks after animals in your community and uh, maybe adopting a furry friend of your own. 
Uh, I know George and Dave can attest to the benefits of having having another friend uh, that you get to cuddle with and uh, and hang out with in your house, uh, which uh, is something I love about having a cat too. Yeah, Wallace is uh, definitely already going ape shit about uh, cat cat cuddling. <laughs> he knew. Oh, Somehow yeah. he knew that I was going to be talking about CatCon today. Uh, I don't see Gladys, though. I'm wondering, is she excited, George? Does she know about CatCon? She doesn't get excited about anything unless it's like waking me up early in the morning when she gets really excited about But she's back there sleeping. She, she strikes me uh, as a cat who doesn't, like, she'll get the invitation to the party, but she's not going to him. Oh, no, she's a diva. Yeah. She'll, she'll, show, up, she'll show up late and then complain about it and just... <laughs> Yeah, she's the she's the cat who shows up for about five minutes and then's like, yeah, this party is dead. I'm going home. This this, this place is dead anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm going home and I'm having I'm having some chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream and I'm watching like yeah. SNL. Like I'm gonna go home and hang out. I love it. I love it. But yes, CatCon. It is now a virtual event. Very exciting. April seventeenth and eighteenth. We'll link it to the copy for this episode. Thanks, guys. Amazing. Thank you very much, Mary Bess, for that. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up another week of Know Your Roles. George, what do we got going on next week? Give the people something to be excited about. Oh, Dave, thank you. Next week, we have cellist, singer, composer, Emily Hope Price. And the game that we're playing next week is films that feature aliens to our favorite games you would find in an arcade. Really excited about that one. Yeah, that's going to be a uh, great game. All right. Well, I want to go ahead and thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to George. Thank you to producer Mary Best. Thank you to our amazing team that did our theme, Alan Sack Kid, Nate88, and Kazo Oslo. Please subscribe, rate, and review to Know Your Roles wherever you get your podcasts. And please, everybody, be safe and be healthy. And my usual enough is uh, wear your mask over your fucking nose. That includes you guy that was sitting on my stoop earlier this morning who decided he was just going to wear it around his chin. So, you buddy. That person that didn't live in my building just sitting out there kicking it. So, wear your mask over your, over your fucking nose. You got to go. Get the fuck off my stoop. <laughs> All right. We're out. Peace. You know the